I think it's a it's a quest to link everything the mind you know the heart and the body to be a full human being have a full existence and I guess you know a lot of it is to uh, sublimate our frustration of human conditions or whatever struggles we encounter in life you know I, mm -hmm. I grew up in a in in technically a good household with a dad who's you know a doctor uh, you know for four kids stay-at-home mom that but it was a lot of emotional and mental abuse you know especially mm -hmm. more towards my sisters I was kind of like the the last kid the little prince of the family but mm -hmm kind of feeling all this discomfort at home and just kind of flying my own wings. You know, I wonder if I felt that already in the womb of my mom because I was, I was, <laughs> I was mm. a nine-pound baby, you know, um, coming out of her belly at nine, no, five weeks early, you know. So mm. I think I was just ready for life. And, uh, and at home, I just, I despised being home. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ Singh and we are super, super excited to be bringing you another episode of Ultra Habits this week. So today we're going to be talking to Matthias Gerard also known as Super Frenchie within the base jumping community and amongst friends and people that know him very well. Now, Matthias is a not-so-common athlete. He is known for combining base jumping with skiing and has completed several first descents and ski base jumps across the world, including the first ski base jump off the Matterhorn in Switzerland. So this guy basically skis off cliffs and then base jumps off of them. You have to see the footage on YouTube. It's all over the place. Just Google Super Frenchie. Now, he's not your common athlete, right? Like, you know, this is somebody that every day he engages his craft. He is dealing with the possibility of not coming home. And he's recently filmed a documentary called Adrenaline Sucks. And it's exactly that. It's focused on how adrenaline, because, you know, everyone out there would call or many people out there would call someone like Matthias a adrenaline junkie. His view is that that's exactly the opposite of what you want when you're facing the conditions that he does when he engages his craft. It's all about Preparation, control, being calm, being centered, and then engaging. And we dive into his craft and how this all comes about in the moment. And the aim really was to extract the lessons and learnings so that we, those of us that are operating in maybe not in life and death scenarios where, you know, one wrong move can mean the end of our lives, but a lot of us within the business or executive community or high performance, you know, category, whatever that might be for you and how that might look like in your life, we're dealing with scenarios all the time where we're coming in, maybe with anxiety, maybe with adrenaline, and we could really benefit from understanding how does someone that's really operating in such an extreme environment, conduct themselves? And then what could we take 
in terms of lessons and implementation into scenarios where we're facing high-pressure situations. He is a deep thinker. We really had a philosophical conversation. We talked about performance. We talked about fear. We talked about adrenaline. We talked about anxiety. We talked about what moves and motivates us. And like always, we like to go deep. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Super Frenchy. If you do, please go to the link and rate this podcast. Give us a review. Let us know if it sucks, if it was great. You know, just let us know. If you haven't already, go to www.ultrahabits.co. That's where all the cool stuff is there about what we're doing at Ultra Habits. More on my world record attempt for burpees in 24 hours. I've got a date now that's going to be October 8th here in Australia. So yeah, get get there. If you haven't already, check us out. Anyways, folks, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Matthias. Enjoy. Peace. Matthias, welcome to Ultra Habits, man. Good morning from Brisbane, Australia. I'm in a in a different state today, but uh, I'm glad to connect with you, man. Uh, thanks for having me, RJ. <laughs> yeah. So, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Is it Matthias or Matthias? Matthias. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Matthias, I wasn't sure. Yeah. yeah. The French way is Matthias, which nobody can really say in English-speaking countries. So I Americanized it a little bit with Matthias, but Matthias is how they say it in Scandinavia, places like that, you know. So yeah, uh, or even Germany. Uh, my mother yeah. is Dutch, so in Holland they say Matthias, but. Yeah, I just go with Matthias. I think it's the most international uh, <laughs> pronunciation we can have. <laughs> yeah, it would be Matthew. No, I can say, no, Matthias is, I guess, the Matthew in French, it would be Mathieu. But Matthias is, uh, it's an old, uh, it's technically a religious name, I think, Catholic. Matthias right. was technically the 13th apostle. But, uh, yeah, I was raised Catholic, but, you know, I evolved more on the heathen kind of side, so... Yeah, you man. are a heathen. Now you're super <laughs> Frenchy. Now you become yeah. super Frenchy. Yeah, I, I belong to the school of uh, metaphysical rebellion, if that makes sense. But yeah, okay. Yeah, we're we're gonna go into that and kind of unpack how that all happened. I I do know that you and I actually have the same birthday. So you were born on September twenty fourth, eighty three. I think I was born yeah. on eighty one. Oh, so wow, we're actually. No way. Yeah, yeah. So we're actually born on the same day and if you're anything like a typical libra i kind of i understand you bro like i, I actually <laughs> you know like i'm not into astrology but a lot of what they say about libras does make sense for me all right yeah. what are the main traits that you're referring to i would say the the quest for balance and integration yeah like i think for me i'm constantly trying to assess my congruency and I'm always reflecting on how well am I actually conducting myself and a lot of times it's shit sometimes it's good but I'm, I'm constantly looking for some form of harmony and I don't know if you relate to that or not oh 100% all or nothing you know yeah. and uh with the uh, incessant neurosis of self-analysis and, and personal improvement yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know, thankfully yeah. they're the mountains, so helps you connect the dots. <laughs> yeah, I um, I'm oh, jealous of you. you. Uh, I'm <laughs> jealous of uh, where you live. Like I, I live in the mountains, but our mountains are nowhere near 
the type of mountains that you have Mont Blanc and I'm an ultra runner and obviously that's the Mecca of ultra running, you know, Mont Blanc. And yeah. do you, do you run at all? Have you ever no, done any? I, I, so when I was in ski Academy, I used to run, right. I'd get off the couch and go do a 15 K run in the mountains. I always had naturally, I think I was always gifted with a good cardio. So I could just go and push it pretty quickly, yeah. you know, um, yeah. which helped me. Cause when I went to physical to ski Academy, I had technical deficiencies compared to the mountain kids. Cause I was not born there, but I made up for it by training extra hard. Um, but, uh, yeah, I used to run quite a bit, but you know, I've blown my knees three times. Now it's more, uh, picking my battles so I can keep going. Uh, I do, I do enjoy running. I just don't, just the wear and tear is too much with all the other impact activities that I do. So I replace that with other kind of training, you know? So, mm. uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm currently living in, in Oregon, in the U S, uh, in the middle of volcanoes. It's a great place to train, but I go back home in the Alps, you know? four or five times, six times a year, because this is where the heart is. And this is where, uh, yeah, all my endless list of projects, uh, yeah, keeps <laughs> expanding. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I, I did a bit of research. And, you know, I came across your, your TEDx video in Berkeley, which, by the way, is kind of my alma mater. That's my hometown. I didn't go to Berkeley, but I grew up in the in the East Bay. No and it was way. a wonderful, yeah, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful conversation with the audience, really. And, you know, that the piece on stick to your landing, first of all, that video was insane, right? Like, you're, you're jumping off this mountain, right? Like, I think you got, uh, your child is due in three weeks. Yeah. And it's just chaos. Can you, can you run through what actually happened and, uh, and actually, before you do that, maybe maybe tell our audience, you know, what is ski jumping? Because it seems like you put together these multiple disciplines yeah. and uh, it's kind of culminated into this crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm kind of furthering the, the French art of a multidisciplinary approach to the mountains. You know, I started as a ski racer, then I moved on to free ride competitions, you know, big mountain skiing. And then uh, I... You know, I grew up around hearing my, my dad's parachuting stories because he was in the French commandos during his military service. And I saw my first images of base jumping when I was nine. It's people jumping off cliffs with parachutes. And instantly I was like, wow, that's the coolest thing you can do with your life. And quickly, I wanted to combine both sports so I could ski things that could not be survived. So my specialty now is to ski a big mountain jump off at the end when there's a, you know, six, 700 foot cliff, open a parachute, fly away and then land softly, hopefully. And, but now, you know, after picking a lot of the easily accessible cliffs, the, the low hanging fruits, the craft becomes more, um, complicated. So I'm, I, by default fully became a mountaineer and an alpinist. So I, you know, I, I can't consider myself an extreme alpinist because I'm not doing some naughty ice climbing, things like that. But I do, you know, hike or climb for a couple of days with crampons and ice axes, 50 pounds on my back to do that one descent with a jump at the end and then fly away. So it's a full journey from the mountain. It's earning you out of the top, you know, uh, seizing the fruit in the descent and flying away. So it's the combination of of a lot of disciplines and it's uh it's extremely fulfilling and which i think is 
what we're all seek in life, you know. We all hear about seeking happiness and things like that, but in many ways, you know, these are fleeting emotions. Happiness is worth as much as sadness. But fulfillment, once you fulfill, everything finds its place. And nobody can ever take that away from you. And when you're fulfilled, you know, yeah, sadness will find its place, happiness will find its place, uh, struggle will find its place, because, mm -hmm. because when there's fulfillment, there's a why. And we are part of answering our neurosis as a human species is finding having a sense of purpose you know a, a meaning to a, a meaningless existence but what is the meaning to your existence which then renders it as not aimless because <laughs> mm. you have a quest so anyway yeah i threw in a lot of stuff sorry <laughs> no 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 we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dive into that so just on that you know you mentioned purpose um, intentionality intentional living is an anecdote to our neurosis. And I tend to agree with you there. And one of the things I heard you talking about on that TEDx was your learnings from your sister's suicide. Yeah. Can you walk our audience through that process? Like what happened and how did you come out of that? So as 18 years old, I just had one of the most challenging years of my life. You know, I, I, uh, I blew my knee skiing, so it was my first big season-ending injury, and uh, as a result, I was failing my first year in business school, then had to put my dog to sleep, and I'm working in a in a greenhouse factory in the summer, sorting, you know, metal parts and, you know, screws and things like that. Doing you know, shit you, work. <laughs> yeah, yeah shit work, exactly. <laughs> and it was, it was part of my business school. You had to do an internship as a worker to see what it says is the ground, but it's also on the ground, you know, level, but also a way to to make money in the summer. So I killed two birds with one stone. And then one day I'm at work and I get a call. My boss calls me in the office. I came and she says, a call for you. Uh, you got to pick it up. I said, like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. I pick up the phone and then I hear um, on the other end, uh, it wasn't even my mother who called. He was, uh, she uh, she had a cleaning lady at the time and she called me. She's like, hey, Matias, I'm picking you up at work in 15, 20 minutes. Uh, you got to come home. Your sister killed herself. So it's just like, boom just, you know, bombarded with heavy news. My sister has been struggling with, you know, depression for years. And, um, and anyway, went home, um, and then had to, I was the only kid home, right? My dad couldn't deal with the news. So he went straight to work. My mom was devastated. So I'm the, I was the only one at home. So I had to pick up the phone and call my sisters. We have two other sisters. I had to give them the news, which was the worst thing ever. Being the messenger is terrible. And uh, then I had to book the appointment in the mortuary, call the police, then book train tickets because we were in south of France, went to Paris, recognized the body, did all that thing at 18 years old, right? And, um, you know, right there, end of childhood or teenage years, boom, over. And, uh, yeah, last thing I know, I'm in this, you know, there's this French funeral, like, procession through this little village in south of France, go through the funeral and all that. And I, I felt like a spectator in while being in the in the story in the action you know it's almost like i was just observing everything and i was trying to soak in as much as i could to because i knew later on i would need it to digest as much as i could it's kind of like my gut feeling about this and seeing all these you know these people around this you know sadness or people don't not even knowing how to respond you know it's, it's a lot of sadness numbness and uh awkwardness i think at funerals mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. uh 
And right there, you know, I started reflecting. I'm like, you know, my knees all fucked up. I'm going through, you know, heavy rehab because that, you know, blown my tibial plateau, meniscus, ACL. Were you skiing at this time? Yeah, I was skiing pretty hard. I blew my knee skiing. Okay. And uh, I was, you know, uh, in my sales internship in the mountains for my business school. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was on my lunch break and throwing flips in the half pipe. And then I landed at the bottom of the half pipe and just bent my knee the wrong way, the other way. <laughs> and, uh, so that was it, you know, but, uh, but right there, I'm like, wow, I'm, you know, understanding that realizing right there, it's like, well, shit, you know, my sister was super smart, you know, she spoke five languages, had a master's in history, literature, she was way beyond my level of intelligence. And, uh, but the one thing she lacked was a why, you know, something beyond her suffering, you know, she went through a lot of heavy stuff, but she didn't have something to that made it worth going through the struggle of everyday life. And I had it because I was still thinking about the next mountain at ski, the, you know, getting back on a surfboard. I love surfing. I was thinking about learning to base jump. I had all these goals past the present state of discomfort that I was in. And right there, it was, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of the times I think in life we commit to our goals often after a traumatic event. And her death was, in a way, the, the traumatic event I needed to give myself a kick in the ass and be like, well, this is what you're going to commit to, you know, and right there. And I decided to commit to my terrifying goals of jumping of things and skiing as hard as I could and, and combining all these disciplines. And uh, that's, that's when I, I decided to commit to my goals, no matter how dangerous it was that day. And after that, my my road towards the search of the absolute began. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you, would you say that your pursuit into this realm was based on an athletic pursuit or more of an answer to your own demons? I think it's both. It's, I think it's a, it's a quest to link everything the mind, you know, the heart and the body to be a full human being, have a full existence. And I guess, you know, a lot of it is to uh, sublimate our frustration of human conditions or whatever struggles we encounter in life. You know, I, mm -hmm. I grew up in a, in, in technically a good household with a dad who's, you know, a doctor, uh, you know, four, four kids, stay at home mom that, but it was a lot of emotional and mental abuse, you know, especially mm. more towards my sisters. I was kind of like the, the last kid, the little prince of the family, but mm. kind of feeling all this discomfort at home and just kind of flying my own wings. You know, I wonder if I felt that already in the womb of my mom, cause I was, I was, <laughs> I was mm. a nine pound baby, you know, um, coming out of her belly at nine, no, five weeks early, you know? So mm. I think I was just ready for life. And, uh, and at home I just, I despised being home. I didn't like childhood. I think it was just a waste of time to know what you want to do with your life, but having to go through all the mandatory steps to be earning your emancipation. <laughs> and I was like, fuck this, you know? And uh, I'm going to do it because I have to. And so mm -hmm. I don't have anything, anybody holding me back. But that's, uh, you know, for me, when I saw the first images of guys doing some of the most daring things in the mountains, for me, they became my archetype of manhood. 
they were the definition of a successful human being that had such a high, strong sense of purpose that even death found its place in their quest. For me, it was the ultimate. Our existential fears became irrelevant. Whatever tied us down to this earth in our human brains was just, you know, uh, very, um, I don't know, just a... Uh, artificial tool in a way you know all of a sudden was ultimate freedom of mind body and heart and that was it and i think it was a response to a frustrating environment you know and uh frustration of life french society which was very stifling growing up because you have the, the weight of tradition the, a certain way of doing things was now you know i live in the u.s and this country drives me nuts for many other things too so i do want to go back home there's no perfect place on earth right you create your own paradise take a piece of that take a piece of that and build the puzzle but uh but yeah i think that that was it i think a lot of it was my daily frustration was a fuel to self-actualize with what was a calling for me was it nothing more nothing less What's your relationship? What was your relationship with your father like? My father was a loving man, you know, sweet, sweet guy. Uh, mm. But I didn't necessarily have much respect for him. You know, he's a man of regrets. He lived his whole life saying, oh, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have done this. He did the right things technically on, the, on, on paper, right? Providing for his family, working hard, but he hated his marriage. He you know, was always, his mind was always traveling somewhere else when he was at home, you know, and uh, which I think, you know, having goals or ambitions or ideas outside of the household is a way to deal with the, the skin crawling, mundane, everyday life to deal with it, right? You know, because hopefully you can create a daily life that is blooming, you know, and helps you flourish. But his was clearly a hindrance but he loved his kids. So he was always a tortured human being, you know? And I think it's also, you know, my dad was born in 1939. It's another generation. You know, he remembers the Nazis walking down the streets. That's how old yeah. my dad is. Yeah. So it was a time of, of duty, not a time of self-actualization. It was a time of doing the right things, I guess, what was imposed to you as the right things, right? You know, he wanted to be a fighter pilot, passed all the exams, but couldn't do it because he blew his eardrum when he was 18. And then he's just stumbled into medicine because he was just a man of science. So I think his dreams were crushed early on, and uh, but he wasn't able to uh, to come up with new dreams, and so therefore mm. he just, yeah, he just. Uh, my dad was a sad man, so, but a sweet man. But yeah, you, what? Given your high baseline now as a, a person that's doing crazy shit. <laughs> what is your, what is, I mean, what's your relationship to the mundane? Like, has it helped you or is, are you kind of on another planet? Like, do you, do you struggle with the basics because your threshold and kind of need for engagement, I would perceive maybe higher than most or am I wrong? Like, do you appreciate the mundane more? I don't, I don't know. Uh, there's different stages, I think, in life, you know, there was a point where, I didn't want anything to do with the mundane. Made me want to throw up, you know. That's why I sought all these things outside of the mundane, you know. But then after that, I, I learned to appreciate pieces of the mundane after, but I could only do it after 
seeking a state of, you know, transcendence and high accomplishment. Um, but now uh, I'm enjoying it more and more. I don't know if it's maturity or because I've actually spent time to go through the fires of passion. But yeah, I think that's where I stand in right now. How do you find your relationships like with 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 women like team are you are you a difficult man to be with like I, I guess the reason I'm asking we I'm an intense person I think you're an intense per person in in many ways like I I seek things that have meaning and purpose I do have kids I have a wife and we're completely opposite and sometimes negotiating that when you have goals, when you're geared a certain way can be challenging, right? Because we need to ensure that we're able to come to other people's level too. So how do you find that? Actually, so the marriage that I had at the time of the crash, you know, before the birth of my son is over, you know, we, uh, the second I came back from that crash, it was just downhill from there and we just upstream for eight years and then eventually ended it, right? You know, so um, I think every relationship, almost every relationship I had was uh, intense, passionate, strong. I'm a pleaser. I love to please. I love to give myself fully to a person. But eventually, I think uh, a lot of people, I mean, almost every relationship, they just couldn't handle it at some point, you know, and I don't blame them, you know, when you're super intense and super driven and one thinks, but it's not impossible because a year ago, I, more than a year ago, I actually met, uh, I made my, my absolute inner person, someone who fully resonates with me and who I fully resonates with, but someone who's a super high achiever, someone who's actually a lot like me, but in different ways too, you know, who's very, um, a lot more poised, a lot more understanding, but has the same level of intensity and strength, but on different levels, you know, professional dancer, um, also a surgical nurse and ex national champion for gymnastics. So it was kind of all or nothing, but I also accepted that I was probably going to be that, you know, uh, man, you know, in my seventies or eighties alone in the house with my dog in my house, just facing Mont Blanc and just being completely okay with it. Being lonely is not, is not necessarily a bad thing. Right. But, um, I also always, I'm a romantic. I've always stayed open, you know, to, to love. I've always, always believed in true love since being a small child. Maybe that's the French side of me, you know? And, uh, but, uh, I think romanticism is super important. And, but the thing is you can't work if you don't have that resonance with somebody else, you know, where you fully connect. And now I'm incredibly fortunate to have found that, you know, and, uh, for me, at least the person that I'm, with has to be equally as willing to fully open up and fully dive in. The second something is not being acknowledged or confronted or pushed under the rug. I think it's probably true for any relationships. It will just collapse sooner or later. And, uh, and yeah, but that's also what I think, I think that's also what contributed to my heavy quest. I think growing up in the mountains, you know, growing up in a, uh, unstable household where you know, it's a difference between affection and love, right? You know, and affection with a controlling mother is actually a tool of control. And I think always seeking um, 
true love, you know, is something that I always valued. You know, I, I, I guess if I have to break down my three existential existential pillars right now, or the mountains, you know, my vocation, uh, true love, and fatherhood, you know, and and I try to thrive as much as I can uh, to live a life of passion, purpose, and pragmatism. And I think that's how it finds its place. But I think a way to intensely seek the mountains was, or, or daring projects, which I still do, I, I love it. This is what I'm fully fulfilled. But I think what gave me the extra drive for it was the lack of true love, you know, and balance in, um, in relationship. And now, now I have it. And that's why I said my relationship with the mundane has changed and evolved, you know. Now I can actually go to Paris and enjoy having a coffee you know, a little bistro and just talking. Whereas before it had been like, no, screw this. You know, what's the building we're going to go jump tonight? You know? <laughs> no, I think it's, yeah. And again, that's why I think, you know, passion, purpose, and pragmatism brings me having a balance between those three things. It has to stay, it's like if you think of it as a triangle, it's got to be equilateral. And if I keep that triangle equilateral, I have the balance that I seek in life. Yeah, I was... You know, you're 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 talking about um, you use the word existential, and I'm an existentialist as well. And I do believe in the power of crucibles and the power of continually sting ourselves and having something hard that's looming that forces to yeah, us to stretch. Um, I was thinking this morning. You know, I'm going through an interesting time. Uh, moved to a place we kind of are not adjusting as well as a family and so I've started to kind of do more sitting with myself right more meditation more just trying to get under the hood around what's going on in my inner world and then I had this realization today that that's just not working and so I decided to kind of shift the gear towards doing some hard shit again to start to move me off of myself. And I guess what I'm trying to say is it's always very difficult to understand that balance of when do you slow down when things aren't going well and shine the light internally. But for a person like me, that can just create more confusion versus, you know, doing some really hard shit. And I'm looking at, you know, a Guinness Book World, um, Guinness Book World Attempt a particular thing that's going to be really hard. And for me, as soon as I have that, I can feel my energy shifting because I'm like, okay, that's where I got to go. And it makes me a bit lighter in other areas. Like I don't start to focus on my internal issues as much because there's something there that's pulling me that's stronger. And I just wonder what your view is on that. Comfort, comfort feeds... After a certain point, right, you know, once you've earned comfort, you've put yourself through the fires of passion or achievement or whatever, comfort is something to, you know, to enjoy. But after a certain amount of time, this is also what is going to make you start going crazy. And, you know, thoughts that you had, I don't want to say conquered, but thoughts or feelings you had digested a long time ago are resurfacing again when you thought the issue was dealt with, you know, or it's something that would not bug you anymore, you know. And and going in the mountains is not of pushing it to the side or doing hard shit. I don't do hard shit just to do hard shit. It's just the stuff that I happen to feel fulfillment through is hard shit. <laughs> and by doing it, like, you know, mountaineering or sometimes ski touring or going knocking out, even if it's just a two-hour ski tour in the mountains or if I go for a 40K uh, backcountry mission, it's 
I don't do it to self-medicate. I do it because it enables this transparent introspection that connects the dots flawlessly. And you come back sharp, acute, and you know where you stand. The biggest lesson that I learned in the mountain is acceptance. Acceptance of who I am and where I am and how I'm dealing with the conditions based on what I can do and, 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 and what I am. And acceptance is key to be able to, to approach your environment in order to, to reach your goals, but to also to be in that state of, of being. We're constantly working on becoming, becoming, becoming. And for this short amount of time, we are. And that state of being is that true state of being with hopefully flawless execution is the apex of our life. And if we have several of them, these become the apogees of our existence. And that's the way I see it. So creating those moments of, of, of infinity, you know, where everything, you're on the verge of losing it all or earning it all. You know, it's that, it's that fine line. That's where the fruit is. That's what I talk about in that TEDx talk. You know, it's, it's, it's such a fine balance. And because success cannot be reached unless you equally accept failure, at least for me. So... And I think this is the moment, again, of, of transparent introspection. It's a, it's a very pure moment that is fleeting, but at the same time, those dots that are connected gives you incredible perspective in the everyday blur. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one because in many ways, personally, I'm, I'm always looking for this balance of striving and becoming. Because I, you know, I, I tell people that we, we should be much more interested in who we're becoming than who we are to a certain degree that keeps us going in many ways. And I think that who we are becoming, um, if we are focused on it, particularly when someone's going through a personal transformation, that could enable them to stay on the path. However, for me, I, I try to overlay it with um, a, a kind of desire to also be comfortable in being and, you know, they're not always, that, that's not always the case, right? Because sometimes, particularly in this period, I've been in a, in, in a bit of a weird patch. And I'm, when I am in a state of being, and there's a certain level of discomfort. And like you said, those old thoughts, those old emotions, certain things that I thought that I had moved through, I could feel them creeping back. And I realized the other day that I got to go on another journey. It's, it's what you're talking about. So when you talk about um, failure and your relationship with failure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push that out a little bit. What's your relationship with death? Well, failure, I mean, in my field, death is failure. That's the ultimate failure. And that's kind of what I was indirectly referring to. You know, I really had that thought before I, I did um, – ski based jump from the summit of Mont Blanc. I've done a few on Mont Blanc and I just did another first last June, but the, the particular one where it all clicked was the one I did from the very summit, which uh, had never been done, uh, was very important for me because it's the mountain I grew up in front of. And the air margin was so slim that I knew that death was very much an option, a possibility. It wasn't not an option. It, death was very much a possibility, <laughs> but you know, once, once dying is accepted, living is mandatory. I also ask myself, are you willing to potentially die for this jump? And my 
question without any hesitation was absolutely. And so my relationship with death is that it's not that I want it, but it's that I fully accepted it. When, and when I did that ski, the ski base jump, but from then it's, it's really, again, going back to that lesson of acceptance in the mound. And that's really, I think I, I, I accepted death a long time ago, just from losing a lot of friends and knowing that it's a reality in my field and coming very close myself. But coming back from an near death experience is a gruesome journey, you know, and they're fully, truly accepting it. And it was not giving up. It was just fully pragmatically accepting my human state and my commitment to my goals. And therefore I, before dropping in, I asked myself, well, what if you die on this jump? I was like, well, if I'm supposed to die somewhere, it's here. This is where I'd want to stay forever. But if there is a forever, who knows? But if there is, if also if I succeed, you know, whatever I get out of this, whatever fulfillment or glory or satisfaction or whatever it is, I also know this would be probably the ultimate of my career as a ski mountaineer. And therefore, as a person, more than just a ski mountaineer. So for me, therefore, living or dying was equally, <laughs> equally worth it. If your son wanted to follow your footsteps, how would you feel? It would be, it would be hard, of course, because we want the safety of our offsprings, right? But uh, I would teach him everything I can. I would take him under my wing, literally, to give him as many tools as he can to survive. But I also think I, I could not be a hypocrite and tell him, no, you can't do that because it's too dangerous. I'd be like, no, do it but do it well. He could actually do it way better than I do because I've learned to be thorough, but he is naturally poised as a being, which I'm finally, for the first time in my life, for the last year, you know, since since everything kind of clicked together and then I also, you know, met my, my ultimate, you know, in a person as well. It's the first time in my life that I actually have serenity. But he is born a very serene person. I had that feeling since he was a baby, you know, and he he's, you know, he's dropping vert ramp on a skateboard. He skis really well. He's very poised about whatever he does. And some stuff he does, I'm like, oh, God, this is gnarly. But so I would be terrified, but uh, I also know it would be incredible to jump off a cliff with my son. In your sport, like, do you have to be a... I would imagine you'd have to be a really prepared, thorough, poised person. But I also imagine there's a lot of like nutcases, like, you know, like fucking just people that are <laughs> really on the edge. Like, what's the relationship yeah. between that? Like, like, because I would imagine nothing's haphazard. Like, you couldn't be haphazard out there, right? When you're preparing to do a project or whatever. Or, I mean, is there an element of luck or is everything literally prepared? Does it look like luck to us? but you guys are like prepared to the nth degree. Like what's the real reality? Well, I think I can't answer that question for every jumper out there, right? There's, there's risk is personal. So people handle risk very differently. I'm, um, I'm, I'm a messy person, but I'm so OCD at the same time, you know? And uh, I think OCD and base jumping is, it's probably one of the best character traits you can have until a certain point. Then you get to a certain point and be like, okay, I am clearly, you know, going in circle in my head right now and overthinking everything, every, everything. I've, I've triple, quadruple checked everything. Let's go, you know. But uh, 
But yeah, no, I I try to plan as much as I can, but there's only so much you can plan, right? When you when your endeavor takes place in a natural environment with a lot of elements that are ever changing. So I always say that, you know, I pull the trigger on a project when I'm 70% sure, for example, that the weather is going to line up. So by the time I get to the mound or I, I'm get there, getting there to drop, conditions are hopefully 90 to 100%, but it's never fully, fully perfect. So you have to always be ready to react and adapt. And I guess that's life, right? Life is an ever-changing environment. Always a flawless execution often requires a perfect, a flawless recovery. That's that's really important. <laughs> and I think that's the thing with base jumping. That's why you got to keep your... I rarely go 100%, you know, with the error margin, you know, like where the error margin is zero and you have to be at a perfect, perfect execution. I'm always going about 80, 90%. The Mont Blanc jump was probably like a 95% commitment with a 5% error margin. What is that always an error margin? Like, is the error margin me? The error margin as far as, as far as, you know, height of the object. Uh, where's the wind coming from? What's your window to open a parachute, uh, to fly, to make the landing area? Is the snow stable? Is there an avalanche danger? You know, taking in all the variables. And obviously it's very subjective because you don't have like hard facts that you can write down, but you can, you get a feel for it. And I can kind of picture, I can almost taste the error margin. And uh, I try to operate with a 10 to 20% error margin so that uh, if something goes worse than expected, there's room to recover. Um, but sometimes you only have 5%, you know, and so there's not going to be a ton of room to recover, but the numbers add up. But if the numbers add up just barely, since the error margin is low, then you ask yourself, are you okay with the execution, the frame of execution, and the error margin? And if you're not, then turn around. It's not your day. You're another man for the job. So, but the job is not for you. <laughs> we we have Stephen Coltler coming on the show, and you know he's renowned for covering your sport, and he's the you know the resident expert on the state of flow. Yeah, the rise of Superman. He's written some pretty good stuff, and one of the things that he was talked about is, you know. And it's funny, your, your, your upcoming project, Adrenaline Sucks, I don't know if it's a play on words, but like I read some of his material that followed athletes that are in pursuits similar to you. And they talk about adrenaline actually being really counterproductive, almost kind of something you do not want to get into a state of. Would you, uh, would you, you know, people would call you an adrenaline junkie. I don't know if that's true or not. What's what's your comment to that? Like, what's the relationship of adrenaline to what you do? Is it good, bad, or is it indifferent? Adrenaline is just a just a simple byproduct that has been overused, and we've always we're always downgraded as action sport athletes as you know adrenaline junkies. And that was the idea behind adrenaline sucks is to set the record straight once and for all, or I guess to try to. And I couldn't, the thing is that I realized is I couldn't be mad at people for calling me an adrenaline junkie or daredevil when they were not educated in the matter. At first I was kind of pissed. And then I was like, well, it's pointless to be pissed because they, they don't know. They're obviously uneducated. And some of them are super smart people. They just don't know what it's like. So it's like, I'm going to do my best to break it down, which is why, you know, I came up with Adrenaline Sucks, which is an open letter where I break down the whole process and philosophy behind him, behind what I'm doing or as much as I can, right? So... Adrenaline is, but as, yeah, ad adrenaline is disappearing more and more with the level of expertise. You have it more in the discovery phase, 
in the reinforcement phase is still there, and then it just diminishes. And now it's almost, it sounds bad, but while I'm doing it, I'm like, you know, of course it works. It's, it's business as usual. It's just exactly what I plan on doing. And he went perfectly according to the plan. But when I land and I turn around, also that's when I realized that these moments cannot be taken for granted because the stars aligned, the conditions were right, and then I was ready and approached it very rationally and intentionally. But it's still, these moments are still a gift, which is why a lot of these moments will never, ever, ever be repeated again, you know? That's why a lot of them were actual first because nobody had either the didn't picture it or see it happening or even or if they saw it they somehow were not able to line up the right conditions to do it. So um, that's why it's that fine balance between oh yeah it's normal to holy shit that was the magic of the moment you know, <laughs> but adrenaline doesn't really have a place in that anymore. I don't seek it at all, and I think it's a preconceived idea that is used to. Just like, you know, we don't know what's after death. Well, we we invent a paradise, you know, or an existence of God, you know, to answer all our existential fears. We don't understand why people take risk. Well, let's just label them, let's just put a blanket statement, call them adrenaline junkies because we're uneducated in the matter because we just don't know. And, you know, obviously the existence of God will, will know that when our expiration date comes, <laughs> whether... It exists or not, but as far as adrenaline goes, or being an adrenaline junkie, yeah, I've lived that plenty of times, and I know exactly that it's not what I seek. Because if this, if you seek, if you seek the rush, it's pretty shallow and disrespectful to your craft in many ways, and it's gonna fucking kill you at some point. So I mean, that's fine if you want to die, that's all good. But do you want to just squeeze the fruit to the last drop? Yeah, don't be a freaking junkie. That's not the goal. B, you don't want to be a hardcore motherfucker chasing the rush. You want to be a serene motherfucker. That's the idea. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant stuff, man. So, Matthias, we are going to start to land the plane, but we always uh, start to really focus on habits and action items that our audience can take away. And I think what I want to ask you is, you know, I think your relationship to to risk, to fear, to mortality is different and it's unique. If a person wanted to start to push the bar in terms of their risk appetite in their lives, what could they do to start to push the boundaries, I suppose, on their tolerance? Well, first I would say that risk risk for risk is idiotic. You don't do something just because it's risky. Do you want to go dive with great white sharks because it's you might get eaten? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the risk makes it a little exciting, right? But it's not the goal in itself. Again, it's, it's just a, another variable to deal with. Do you want to go dive with great white sharks because you think they're magnificent animals and you want to get to them as close as you can because you fully admire them? That's a different That's a different thing. So what I would tell people, if, if you're thinking about doing something different that is risky, spend some time reflecting on your ethos because ethos is everything. If you don't have the ethos, whatever you're trying to build is going to be a leaning tower of pizza. You know, it's not going to be, <laughs> it's, yeah, it'll, it'll probably stand out, but it's not going to be solid, you know? Um, or it'll be, yeah, kind of weirdly crooked. I mean, that's fine. You know, I have nothing wrong with 
with, with weird. I guess the, the Leaning Tower was not necessarily a great example for this, but I would say, yeah, question your ethos because your ethos is what matters uh, in the end because that's what's going to make you thorough or not. That's also what's going to help you get back on your feet after you fail, after you crash, after you're almost dead. This is also what will push you to, to recover. And, and this is when we fail that our ethos matters most, you know. And this is also something that is necessary to succeed because your ethos will make sure you have, I mean, if you have ethos, you'll make sure you have all your ducks in a row and then you will do it assiduously. That's it. I think it's about being assiduous. It's not about risk. It's about your ethos. And I, yeah. and I think what you're saying is like, if you know why you're doing it, yeah. like if there's, if it's purpose and that purpose will, if we're dedicating to that purpose and we become that purpose, it will naturally stretch the bounds of our... 100%. I think, you know, it goes back to that good old quote of Nietzsche, who, which was uh, cited in Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which is very interesting because some of the, some of the Nazi ideas were based on some of, you know, were taken out some of the ideas from Nietzsche. And then that same quote from Nietzsche helped a Jewish psychiatrist survive the concentration camp, which is what I find super interesting about that quote because it could have been used for doom and despair and destruction or actual survival and meaning. And that quote is, he who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow. So you get a why, you can do anything. That's pretty much what that quote says. So you get a why, you can't handle any kind of risk. But your why better be solid. So ask yourself that first before you take a risk. Oh, man, we're going we're gonna to close on that, man. That is absolutely brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming on the show, Matthias. Where can our audience learn more about the project Adrenaline Sucks? Where can they learn more about you, bro? So right now, obviously, if you stay posted on my social media, Instagram is Super Frenchy Official, Super Frenchy Official on, on, on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Twitter is at Mathias Giraud, my first name, last name. Uh, Adrenaline Sucks is right now not available for view anywhere you want, whenever you want. It's on the film festival uh, circuit. It's doing really well. We got um, we, it, it premiered at the Mendy Film Festival, which was a mountain film festival in Spain. So we're on the Mendy tour right now, which has 50 dates, I think, through Spain and Europe. So stay posted because um, uh, we might be at some European film festivals as well, other ones that have not been confirmed yet, so I can't say it yet. But stay posted on my social media because I will keep people posted on where it's going to play and when. But also... Um, Adrenaline Sucks is available for, you know, private showing with uh, speaking engagements and open discussion because I truly love talking about this and exchanging ideas with people. I love people to challenge me and, and, and help me reflect or we can reflect on things together. So if, uh, if you're interested in having Adrenaline Sucks there for a company meeting, an event, whatever, just, yeah, you can hit up um, either my manager, my business manager, Carlos at superfrenchy.com or you can handle my tour, uh, contact my tour manager. His name is John Davis, john at 1988entertainment.com. So that's how to get in touch. So. All right, brother, man. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Take care.